when I sent out the notice, by the way, uh, by the way, we have 570 people on our uh, rolls that get uh, emails every week. That shouldn't be because there are not 570 people that uh, come here on a regular basis. So we're going to be cleaning that up. So if you're giving your attendance, make sure you mark that you're in there. But as I sent that out, I came up with the idea of calling it believers, unbelievers, and make-believers. In essence, though, we only have two different groups of people. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. But some of those unbelievers are here and they don't know that they're an unbeliever. They attend church. They do that all the time. They, they actually like attending church because some of you people are friendly. Some of the goodies are good on Sunday. You know, all, all of those different reasons, you know, uh, that they come. And then the make-believers, I don't know that make-believers generally hang out at Grace Church. I, I don't think that they find acceptance here so easily. But one thing I do know is that there are make-believers in the universal church. There are actually make-believer pastors, make-believer preachers in the church. And so that's what I'm trying to get uh, your idea is that there are some who do it for a particular reason, and um, I don't always know their motive and reason for doing, doing it, but they are doing it. This section that we're going to look at today, it's Matthew chapter 7, so if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, is one theologically packed um, set of verses. It's an often preached passage. When it comes to evangelism, this is something that's used quite often. It has implications for all of us here. I, I don't care if you're a believer or an unbeliever, you should be looking at these passages and saying to yourself, where am I? Am I a believer? Am I an unbeliever? Am I a make-believer? Those are the things that should be running through your minds. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, this is a desperately serious matter. A desperately serious matter. And well, it is, folks. If you want to call yourself a believer... You just don't sign up like you do for the Boy Scouts. You don't just sign up and, and go to the school. You, you, something happens. You know, so many folks come on Sunday and they sit there and they say, oh, John didn't do such a good message today. Or if that could ever happen. I noticed what I said there. It's job security. Um, <laughs> if that could ever happen. But who are you to judge? What have you done with that message? How are you applying that message to your heart and to your mind? And how are you changing? Do you come and, and you're just like a, a, a watching a football game on Sunday and just judging whether the quarterback did a good job or not or the, uh, the pulling guard did, his good, uh, did a good job or whatever? No, you're not there just to view it. You're there to do something with it. You're there to do something in your life and in your heart with that message. It's not just preached because that's what we do. It's preached to see that happen. This passage basically calls for a serious examination. And i got to tell you, I've been wrestling with this uh, because Carl and I knew that he had to take five weeks and then I get five weeks and all of that kind of stuff. For five weeks, I've been wrestling with this. I've been, I've been running this through my mind and my heart and thinking about it, and every time I see somebody, guess what passage I'm going to? Every time that somebody comes in my office, where are we going? We're going to Matthew chapter 7. 
this is the application of all that Jesus has preached. He's, he's been giving us so much truth in the Beatitudes and all the other, other situations that he's given us there. And now he's coming to the point where here we apply it, folks. Here we apply it. Jesus has finished his teaching. It's basically over in this sermon. Now he's applying that to you, to me, to those who were there in the crowd, his apostles that were following him, his disciples that were following him, and the crowd that was there. He's giving them a grave warning. He's giving them a grave warning. It's not just because of your pedigree or anything else that gets you into heaven. It's not because you're a Jew. It's not because you're even here to listen to this message. This passage sticks in the brain, folks. It sticks in the heart. And it should stick in the heart of every believer, unbeliever, and make-believer. And as you read the Bible, you should be confronted with this truth. And I've chosen those three categories because I believe that's what we have even here in Anchored Fellowship. I believe we have those three categories here. That make-believer category is not to get more money out of the crowd, but it's to get more acceptance out of the crowd. You want to be loved by others. It's a very difficult thing in this world to be loved by others. People just ignore you. You don't have a lot of friends. Somebody said that once you hit 50, you start losing the number of friends that you have. I believe that's the truth. But if you come to the church, you have all kinds of friends. So the believer is obvious. We know who the believer is. They hear the Word of God, they hear it preached, they realize how spiritually bankrupt they are, and they give their life to Christ. They realize how sinful they are, and they need a Savior. That's what they do. They cry out for the Savior. Please save this wretched man. Please clean this heart that's filthy. That's what the believer does. We looked at that back in Matthew chapter 5. And it was very clear there that you had to be spiritually bankrupt. You had to know that you were poor in spirit to be able to understand even what Jesus Christ has done for you. The unbeliever is one who reads the Word. Maybe he hears the Word, or she, please understand, I mean both. But they just don't believe. They just don't believe. They walk away. They want life their way. They want it their way. Uh, They may come to church, but their heart is not in the worship. Their heart is not in worshiping the king. Their heart is looking around and saying, are people paying attention to me? Maybe. Many unbelievers declare to themselves that they are even enemies of God, and they turn away from the church. Then we have the make-believer. That's the other category This is the one that uh, hears, maybe even succumbs to some of the commandments that they begin to follow some of those things, but he still is so self-focused in his life. All he cares about is self. He doesn't allow the scriptures to wash over him and confront him with the truth of God's word. That's what this make-believer does. He doesn't want the scriptures to invade his heart and his life. 
please, that begins to upset me. Keep it away from me. The the, the scriptures make it uncomfortable for me. That's how you can have a church of 30,000 people and they don't talk about sin. They don't talk about repentance because I don't want to hear it. That tells me I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Some unbelievers and some make-believers don't even know their spiritual status. They don't even think about it, nor... Frankly, do they care? How do we know? Because you look at this passage, it's going to say clearly that they didn't know. When they come to judgment, that's when their eyes begin to open up. It's too late then, folks. It's too late. The make-believer is one who may in his flesh serve the Lord, but that is not a deterrent to his regular practicing of sin. He just loves his sin and he keeps practicing it. This make-believer may even know that they are not gods, but they play the game. And again, I don't know their heart. And and I watch these things in in some of the television preachers that you see and all of these kinds. I don't know their heart. How can they be saying those things? But they're doing it to get something out of it. They're doing something to to get something out of it. They're a charlatan looking for financial gain, for personal gain. Uh, Who knows, popularity, they just want to be known. You know, they Google their name and, you know, they're going to come up first, you know, that kind of thing. Folks, this passage should be scary. It should be scary for every single one of us. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are scary words to hear, folks. Scary words, especially if you're a churchgoer and you've gone to church thinking, oh, I'm okay, I go to church. Today we're going to look at these three categories, believers, unbelievers, and make-believers. For the sake of encouragement, I'm going to leave the believers to last, so that remains on your mind, Okay? Because I do love you. I'll leave that category to last so that the focus can be on that, what a believer truly is. The unbeliever can be sitting in church every single week. They listen to Carl Hargrove and John MacArthur and they still go away an unbeliever. Could you imagine that? I can't. They're not convicted, they're not moved, they're not saved. They're in the kingdom of darkness. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, a natural man. That's what they are, is a natural man. They haven't been converted. How in the world can that happen? How in the world can that happen? I, I, to me, it just is astounding. The first time I heard the gospel as a, a dead person... I said to my wife when I listened to this tape by John MacArthur, everything he says is right. I just don't want it. That was my first declaration. I don't want it. 
because I know what the implications are. I got to change. I can't keep doing the things I want to do. And of course, the hound of heaven kept coming after me. He took me down. It's hard to admit, hard to admit, but some of you are fun to be around, and maybe they just want to be around you. So don't be so fun. No. (laughs) They come back because, you know what? You're friendly because they have no friends. None. It's like this couple I counseled with years and years ago. I asked them, how long have you been coming to Grace Church? 11 years. I said, do you have any friends here? No, not really. I, I said, you've been here 11 years and you have no friends here? Oh, oh, but we do know John MacArthur. I said, oh, really? How many times have you had him over for lunch or for dinner? Oh, no, no, not that way. We just know him because he preaches. Folks, that's scary. 11 years going to church and you don't know anyone? Why? Because you're afraid to let them into your life. You're afraid that they're going to see your life and they're going to see things that you need to correct and you don't want someone telling you what to do. You don't want somebody telling you that you need to change. But you see, that's what the gospel is for. It is to help us to change and to grow and and to be the people of God that he wants us to be. Because when the unbeliever looks at us, they should see something different. They should see something different. You see, folks, you love freely. And the unbeliever has only the church as a place where they can come to feel that love, to know that somebody cares for them. You give your time. You make an effort to reach out to people. You, you do that because you care about their souls and, and their eternal existence. The unbeliever truly just likes the atmosphere around here. And they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. Remember, they have rege- experienced so much rejection in life that the world has, has turned them off so many times. The world keeps beating them up. They come here to have a friendship without cost. There are some who feel comfortable because mom and dad used to go to church. Mom and dad went to church, and and this is what we always do. We follow what mom and dad do, and we go to church. It's become a habit. And, And so you keep going to church, and maybe you keep looking for a church. You keep going from here to there and everywhere. Mom even had you raise your hand, sign the Bible so that you would say that you're saved. Maybe even put in your Bible the date of salvation. They pushed you forward to go get baptized when you're seven years old. But there's no sign of spiritual life. No hungering and thirsting after righteousness. None. None. No hungering and thirsting after righteousness. When I was pastoring the children's ministry, and I was that for a good 17 years, I asked Pastor John, I said, can we baptize the children here? His answer was, only if you approve it. I said, thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Put that responsibility all on me. (laughs) Only if you approve it. I had nine children come forward who wanted to be baptized. Nine children. 
I mean, in a church like this, only nine, because the parents, I think, are more mature, and they know that they don't want to put their kids up too soon. One girl could not answer a question that I gave to her about, you know, salvation and things like that, of what happened. Her mother insisted that she be baptized. Her mother just kept pounding on the door. She needs to be baptized. So she said that I intimidated her. Could you imagine me intimidating anybody? (laughs) What? No way. That's what she said to me. The, The mother even went to Pastor John. Yeah. And she said, he's not letting her get baptized. And he, his answer to her was, he's the gatekeeper for children's ministry. Friends, I, if I initiated or intimidated her, could you imagine what 3,000 people would do on a Sunday evening when you have all of these people out there and, and she's got to do this in front of 3,000 people? Are you kidding me? There was another girl who gave all the answers. Sweet family. I know the family. She was bright. She was articulate. She knew her Bible well. I told the parents that she's well-versed in the Scripture, but she is really young. I said, the experience of baptism will be forgotten by her. Why don't you give it a little bit more time when she gets a little bit older? That would make it more precious to her. She would remember that. But I said, you know what? If you insist, I, I will baptize her. That young lady is a practicing lesbian today. She's a practicing lesbian today. It's not what you know, folks. It's not what you know. I once challenged a young man when I was in children's. I said, memorize a scripture. I'll go buy you two Dodger tickets. Could you imagine how hard that was for me? (laughs) To buy two Dodger tickets for this kid? He came back the next week at 1 Corinthians 13 down like that. He's in jail right now. He's in jail right now. It's not memorizing the scripture. It's not knowing even what the scripture says. Jesus is going to tell us what it is. Jesus is going to tell us here in a little while. Somebody even said to me, well, if you had baptized her, she would be saved. Yeah. I I got to tell you, folks, if that were to happen, I go down there and baptize every child in our children's ministry right now, a thousand of them. I'd baptize every child whenever I could find them. No, that's not going to save them. My saying no or my saying yes doesn't make them saved. Frankly, a fellow I got baptized with is not saved. This is back in 1902, I think it was. (laughs) He's not saved. So folks, you can see it's not those things that are on the outside that make you saved. It's not those things. The unbeliever thinks they're saved because they go to church. They attend a Bible study. That's convenient for them, okay? Maybe they even come back on Sunday evening, you know, when we have a plaza fellowship and they're serving churros, you know? I mean, who wouldn't want to come back? But that's all they do. Matthew 7.22 says, On that day, scary. Folks, on that day is for all of us. We will all have that day. You cannot escape that day. That is the day of judgment. On that day, the day of ultimate judgment, there is nothing that you can hang your hat on because works do not save you. 
I don't care how much works you do. I mean, we can see the whole list that Jesus gives here. It's not works that's going to save you. Only and simply trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to take your sins. Do you deserve it? Not in the least. Not at all. The God-man went to the cross and he died for us taking our sins. At times I think, hasn't he taken enough? I mean, could you imagine just my sins and I can't imagine your sins that he's had heaped on him over and over and over again. What a God that he would do that for us. We don't deserve it, folks. We don't deserve it. On that day, that judgment's going to come. What are you going to say? What can you say? Oh, I went to Grace Community Church. And you know that they had that great preacher there. What was his name? John MacArthur. Oh, that's not going to help you. That's not going to help you. I, I always used to say, I wish John was at the gate when I got there because he's got so much grace that he would give me grace. <laughs> That's not going to get it in, get you in either. On that day, you know, it's interesting. There's a parable that comes in Matthew 25 about the virgins. And, and they're there and, and uh, they say, Lord, Lord, uh, open for us. Open for us because they had forgotten to be ready for it. The question is, are you ready for it? Those virgins that were there, there was five of them that weren't ready for it. On that day... He says, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. To me, that means there's preparation time that needs to be taken here. You need to be getting ready for that day. It's not just a matter of punching the clock on Sunday morning. The unbeliever thinks they're saved. Why? Because they even know theology. Oh, my, look at this. They do know theology. Is theology going to get you saved? No. The great, one of my greatest stories when I was in seminary was Dr. Robert Thomas telling about Etta Linneman. Etta Linneman was a, a great um, translator of the Greek text. She was a great translator of the Greek text. It was in Germany. When she finally got saved, after she had done all of that, she said to everybody, burn my books. I was an unbeliever. But she had the brains to know how, and, and of all the Greek texts, she was, from my understanding, was excellent. And he told us that story, and I, wow, I sat there, couldn't believe it. So I don't think it's even knowing the Greek and the Hebrew. Not even being able to speak it. They think they're saved because they know theology. Where do I get that? It's right in the text. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord Lord, folks, this unbeliever knows that Jesus is God. This unbeliever knows that he's Lord of all. You know, I I know who the President of the United States is, but I don't really know him. They know who Jesus is, but they don't really know him. That's scary. This unbeliever's doctrine is perfect. As a 
teacher, they put in a paper, I'd say, perfect theology. But is it perfect in their heart? Why don't they know the Father? Yet because he does not do the will of the Father, he will not enter into eternal kingdom with Christ. He won't do that. It'll be impossible for him to get there because he doesn't do the will of the Father. And you say, but, but Bill, how do I know what the will of the Father is? Pick up your Bible. Make sure you know your Bible. You know your scriptures. What it tells you to do there. It, it's not a guessing game. It's laid out for us. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. You have to know what his will is, folks. Lord, Lord, it, basically what they're doing is they're confessing his deity. They're recognizing the holy position of his sovereignty. This professing Christian is using the name that recognizes Jesus' divinity. They can't get away from it. They know that he's God. This unbeliever calls him Lord. Curios, he's, he's Lord. His doctrine is perfect, but he does not follow this person. He may assign deity to him. He may say, you're my majesty, you're my whatever, but he does not follow that person. Doesn't stop there. What else does this unbeliever do? They have prophesied and done miracles. You know, I, part of my joke this morning about knowing this man's name ahead of time was, was to, hey, I even know his name ahead of time. No, that doesn't do anything. Matthew 7.22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? That's a lot of stuff, folks. I've never done a miracle. I've never cast out a demon to my knowledge. I've spanked my children a few times, but uh, the demon was still there. Okay? That's about it. That's as far as I've gone. <laughs> I, I think I had a demon talk to me once, and all I did was read the Bible because I had nothing else to do. What confidence this person has? They have it in their deeds, their actions. They do things. Supposedly, they do those things on behalf of the Lord. Not only do they know theology, but they have deeds as well on top of it. They claim here that they are prophesying. And that, that claim, folks, in that claim, they're saying that they did that with the approval of Jesus. They're prophesying. Uh, but I still want to remind you Jesus says, even if the rocks are silent, I can make them cry out. So it's, it's, he, he can use dumb rocks too. He doesn't need un, just unbelievers. Although they think they are the Lord's, they will hear, verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Whew. They receive an answer, folks. And the answer is a dismissal. Dismissal, total rejection. Folks, this does not mean that Jesus is ignorant of who they are. He knows their existence. He knows their personhood. But rather that he never knew them as one of his followers, as one of his 
um, children. He knows their existence. Jesus adds, depart from me. I think this is Jesus' go home statement. Go home. Depart from me. Your home is not with me, is what Jesus is saying. I never knew you. God has spoken to and about others like this. He did it back in 2 Samuel. You don't need to turn there, but in 2 Samuel 2, 12, speaking of the sons of Eli, remember they were supposed to be priests and do uh, worship and and lead in that way. And, And this is what is said of those sons. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They were even priests. They did not know the Lord. So you can be in in some very nice positions, even within the church, and not know the Lord. Years ago, there was a man on our staff, one of our fellow pastors, and he gave me his testimony. He says he was in the pastor for about five years, and then he got saved. (laughs) Can you imagine? I know another pastor who was married to his wife for a good many years, and then she got saved. You never know, folks. You can be that person who's doing it by habit because this is what we've always done, traditionally passed down to you from one generation to the next to the next. What do we do on Sunday? We go to church. We go to church. The person being rejected here by God may profess his allegiance to the king of creation. This person's lips are moving in solidarity with the Messiah. But... That is all that is in harmony with Jesus. The lips are moving. They're saying things, but not the person. Not the person. The person still denies God. They deny God with their thoughts. They deny God with their words. They deny God with their actions. It's not just what you are on Sunday. It's what you are on the rest of the week. When Jesus says these words, I never knew you, He's not saying that God didn't recognize them. No, he did. He is saying God did not have an intimate relationship with them. That special relationship that believers have. You see, that good shepherd is going to let you know by that relationship, that intimacy. Jesus loves his sheep. He's not going to neglect his sheep. And he will let them know. The reason why they didn't have this intimate relationship is right there in verse 23. You who practice lawlessness. This tells us the life of one that has rejected Jesus Christ is a life that continuously rejects Jesus Christ by their actions. And I sometimes think about this, folks. I'm counseling folks all the time, you know, and And somebody tells me, you know, they got saved when they were seven years old or ten years old or in high school or whatever it is. And then they lead a life of complete sin. I mean, I can't tell all of those kinds of things here in public. But they go through this whole thing and and then they came back to the church. I I try to inform them, maybe you just got saved. Because all of those things don't go on in the heart of a Christian. A Christian doesn't practice those things. On a regular basis. 
Yeah, I, we all feel guilty when we do something wrong, don't we? I mean, the science says don't walk on the grass, you walk on the grass, you feel guilty about it, you know? Especially in California when there is no grass. <laughs> they have, feel guilty about it, but that's about it. You who practice lawlessness. You look at um, Galatians chapter 5 and it says, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I always ask people, how much practice do you think is necessary? 2% of the time? 10% of the time? I know what it is. It's 51% of the time. No. You want to be running from that line as much as you possibly can and not practice those things over and over and over. Folks, God makes the rules, not Bill Shannon. The Bible makes the rules, not Bill Shannon. You have to look at these things. I mean, I get some folks that that argue with me that somehow I am a a works righteousness kind of preacher. No, I'm an obedience preacher. This is what God wants. It's not Bill. You who practice lawlessness, this tells us a life that's rejected Jesus Christ on a regular basis. The life configuration is one of continuous, unforgiven sin. And if you keep coming in and saying the same sin every single week, and I get that over and over and over, folks, I'm not a priest. I'm not going to give you absolution. You've got to change. My Lord, in Matthew 18, says, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, cut off your foot. If you are causing sin, deal with it. And there are plenty of ways to deal with it. You can. The scripture gives you the way. And you need to find that. You see, this life is emblematic of those who practice lawlessness, the life of this unbeliever. It's emblematic of those who practice lawlessness. They keep, they keep doing it on a regular basis. Folks, let's talk about the make-believer. That was the unbeliever. But remember, they're categories, subcategories of one another. I don't want you to get confused that somehow Bill has come up with a third level of person. You're either a believer or an unbeliever, period. But I wanted to make the the, uh, make-believer out there a little bit different because we have those things to deal with. They may even have a fervent proclamation of truth. But that doesn't prove anything, does it? It doesn't say anything about what their true faith is. A preacher can be fervent and appear very sincere even at times. But all the while, he is a make-believer. Wow, that's scary. Can't imagine how much condemnation that person has to look forward to. And folks, I'm not even going to talk about those that you know you know, the Joel Osteens of this world and those kinds of people. I'm not going to talk about them, although I just did. <clears throat> Let me give you an, another example. Um, actually, I could give you a few examples. The reformer, Martin Luther. He did many things for God as a monk. He studied the Bible intently in the monastery. He performed many duties as, as a monk at and, and for all those things, he thought he was God's. He thought he was Christ. Friends, he would even believe that Jesus died for sinners. He believed that. Luther believed good doctrines. But he did not understand the gospel. The gospel that was freely given by Jesus. 
He did not understand that his works, his responsibilities, and, and were useless. The doing them over and over and over again didn't achieve anything. As one who's gone to a confessional as a Roman Catholic before I got saved, that's what Luther did all the time. He'd go to the confessional, spend three hours in there confessing every single sin you could think of, come out, and then go back in because he forgot something. He, he kept beating himself up over these things. I mean, whether it was a thought or a deed or anything else. That's what he would do. He was deceived in thinking that something else had to be done to be saved. Make another confession. Get down on your knees for three hours. All of those things, he spent hours and hours on his knees. How many of us do that? He performed other acts of penance that would give him a place with God. That's what he thought. And folks, that's all complete rubbish. Complete rubbish. We were in Italy many years ago now, and they had steps that you can crawl up on your knees to get absolution. You, you could walk through a certain door and you get absolution. And go, are you serious? This is self-deception. Self-deception that goes on in the church today, not just in that kind of church. Not just because you attend, not just because you go to Bible study, even though the best ones are in Anchored. <laughs> Folks, even if you're a pastor, and you're dynamic in the pulpit, but you do not do what the Bible says, you are worthless dung. You are worthless dung. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Period. End of sentence. So simple. So simple. What Jesus is saying here is that it is not the profession that makes you saved, folks, but doing the will of the Father that matters. But he who does the will of the Father, verse 21, who is in heaven will enter. Beloved, when you give your life over to Jesus Christ, you declare that it's no longer yours. This life that you now have is no longer yours. It's His. He's your master. You trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Your selfish ways begin to be put to death. And folks, I know it's a process. That, that putting on, I mean, that putting off and then the putting on, that is a process. It doesn't happen overnight, but there is a desire for progressive sanctification. The scary part of this message is that Jesus says, many, many will say to me on that day, could you imagine how many are going to be there at the judgment seat? It makes me think of the broad road, of the wide gate that many people are going through, thinking, hey, that's all I got to do is go through that gate over there. It's really pretty. Many will say to me. The question then is, how do you overcome self-deception? I, I think that's a good question. How do you overcome self-delusion? Self-delusion runs deep in the heart of some folks. They don't like looking in the mirror to see what's there. They'd rather have it all purdy. You know, they, they don't want to see any bad things. 
Well, that is why Jesus put this application of the sermon here, now. Here in this text, he, he wants those who are listening to listen with all of their ears, with their whole heart, with their whole mind, and with their whole soul. There is a terrible danger, folks, terrible danger, to think that just because you know theology or just because you go to Grace Community Church that somehow you're assured your salvation. You may not be a member of Grace Church. No, that doesn't make it. You may not be a member of Anchor. That could be. No, that doesn't do it. See, there's all kinds of things that we sort of, you know, lay our hat on and, and we think that this is all we need to do. And folks, it doesn't mean anything. The bottom line is that God wants your obedience. That's all he wants. Doesn't want your works. Doesn't want your words. Doesn't want your money. He wants your obedience. That's what he wants. The warning that Jesus is giving here should send us all into action, folks. And and I know I I bring this up at least in the counseling class, and maybe I brought it up here. Psalm 139. I love this psalm. First of all, because of the great theology that's here about the omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence of God, he is extremely all-powerful. David is expressing how God knew him when he was in his mother's womb. Okay, so that's, that's pretty uh, interesting, even for today and uh, this whole abortion thing. God knew him while he was in his mother's womb as a person. And he says in verse 23 in Psalm 139, search me. Wait a minute. God knew you when you were in your mother's womb. He knows you down to the deepest part already. Search me, O God, and know my heart. What he's crying out for is, God, eliminate all unrighteousness in this filthy heart of mine. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. He he just wants to have his whole person cleansed to look at every aspect of his life and say, Lord, help me here. But you see, that should be our cry every day. Lord, cleanse me of all of this. The way to do this is through a thorough examination of what God has told you to do. Here's another verse, and you know this one well if you have a MacArthur Study Bible. You look at the uh, bottom, the bottom, uh, the end of the MacArthur Study Bible in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. And this is the way that John even encourages people to do a, sur- a thorough self-examination. And you can go through that whole list, folks, and look at that list. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says this, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself? that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Test yourselves. It's important to do that. It's important for me to look at scriptures that way so that I am, hey, how how am I doing this? Am I doing this? Am I loving him with my whole heart, mind, and soul? What is happening here? So that's for the make-believer. We have the unbeliever, we have the make-believer, and now the believer. That's our last category, folks. 
And I, I did want to leave it to, to the last here because I want to encourage you, but encourage you not just to think about your profession of faith, but what has happened in your life since your conversion. That's the difference. What has happened actually in your life since conversion? And has it happened? Or do I still do all the same things I used to do and I'm just putting church on top of it? I'm just putting Bible study on top of it. But I still do all of those same things. That to me is not a converted life. Because you look at the poison of your sin and you say, I don't want to go there anymore. And you begin to do something about it. Now, does it always end immediately? No. I understand that. The profession that you make of faith gives you access to God. And you say, come change me. You pray like David did, Psalm 139, search me, you've got to know my heart. Test me, I want to be tested. You begin to read the word and you begin to be confronted with what it says there. And you go, oh, I, I can't do that thing anymore. Oh, I can't do this. Or, oh, I need to do this. It becomes a life that's filled with challenge. Sometimes disappointment because you know what? Your trajectory is not as much as you want. It's still going... on a straight line. There should be sincere striving to be obedient to the things of God. That's what he's called you to. That's what he wants from you. Now, please note, this category is not giving a list of doctrines that you need to believe or know or to be understood. But it's knowing this and applying it to your life, knowing the scriptures and applying them to your life. It is not how much theology you know, but how much God do you know? How much of Him do you know? You see, we create our own gods. Isn't that what the Jews did as they're going through the desert? They created their own gods they wanted, they got. We create our own self God. And we'd rather worship that self-God. I need to take care of me. Poor me. Poor me. It's not about that, folks. The category of believer mentioned here in verse 21 is, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Seems pretty simple. Some of you are saying, well, that's what I believe. And that's great. Turn to Romans 10.9. Very, very simple, profound, direct understanding of the gospel. And it says in Romans 10.9, it says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Now, we're going to stop right there. Notice what you just said. You're confessing Jesus as Lord. Not many of us have lords around here, do we? Jesus is Lord of your life, every aspect of it. And you should snap your heels every time he tells you to do something kind of picture. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
done. I'm the Lord's. I have nothing to worry about. Wow, sounds great. Let me, let me give you a little bit of an illustration. At the age of six, our oldest daughter locked her sister in the bathroom. <laughs> the oldest daughter gave the three-year-old sister the gospel and said, you must believe, otherwise I will not let you out of the bathroom. That's how bathroom evangelism started. Don't do that in our bathrooms here today, okay? So she confessed. Did that make her saved at three years old? No, I can tell you it didn't. She didn't get saved until she was 16. Is that what we need to do? No. The profession means nothing. The profession means nothing unless you do the will of the Father. I mean, you can, you can do that. You can start to torture somebody having confessed Jesus Christ as Lord that does not make him Lord of their life. It is doing the will of the Father, not a mere profession that matters. So you see, if you truly trust Jesus Christ, your lives are going to reflect that work in your heart. The idea of doing the will of the Father is throughout the Gospels, and I'm, I'm going to just give you a few others in, right there in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 10, it says there, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom. That's Acts. Sorry, wrong chapter. Matthew chapter 6. Okay. Verse 10 in there, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying that prayer that his will will be done. Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. Another scripture. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and he is my sister and he is my mother. Notice it's the will of the Father, following the will of God. And and we have others. Let me give you another one. Um, John 8, another gospel, John 8, 31. John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, so 20 years ago you made a profession of faith in Christ, have you continued in his word? If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And there are other scriptures, the Colossians chapter 1. I love Colossians. I use that in my own baptismal time when I was baptized here because I found it so profound. So, Colossians 1.22. Uh, Yet he has not reconciled you to his freshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That's what we're to follow, is the hope of the gospel. We are to be followers of the word of God. 
Friends, that may sound like a works theology, but it is far from that concept. You cannot work for your salvation. It's impossible. As a Roman Catholic, I tried. I was an altar boy. I go there during Lent. I go to church every single day. I'd be doing altar boy things, you know, that kind of stuff. I used to do the Stations of the Cross. I was thinking, oh, that's going to make me holy. And I still went and did the same pathetic thing when I got out of there. You see, when you get saved, the complexion of the believer wholeheartedly is toward God, towards the things of God. Please notice, Jesus' call here is to make every effort at theological understanding. Don't think so. Don't think so. He warns about our actions. He warns about our activities that are contrary to our profession. If I, can, if I may say it, it's really not complicated. The gospel is not complicated. Your walk with the Lord is not complicated. It's just a matter of humble repentance. It's a matter of faith. Well, let me give you a, a hint here. Let's look at 1 John. Friends, that perfection that the Lord is asking for here is spoken of in 1 John. Look at verse 8. We're going to go through a few verses here, so hang on. 1 John 1, 8, and it says, If we say, notice what it says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So whenever I've had somebody who tells me that they've not sinned, guess what? I already know they have because they just were being very prideful. Verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what our life is to be, is a life of repenting from sin. Verse 10, if we say that we uh, have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I love this in 2.1, my little children. I love the way John puts that, my little children. He cares for these people as if they were his children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He wants them not to sin. That's the, that's the uh, projection that we should be going for, or the, the way, the, the direction we should be going in is to not sin, but that we not sin, but, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Righteous. So you're all sinners. I know that. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But the projection is this, is that we not sin, that we do what the Father has told us to do. The life that is practicing lawlessness, that's what Matthew 7 is talking about. The one who is struggling with their sin and trying to beat their sin and all of that, that's not what it's talking about. The practicing of lawlessness. So let me encourage you. If you are practicing that lawlessness, don't don't, uh, just wish it away. Do something about it. Do something about it. Let me encourage you, if you're an unbeliever, God brought you here today for this specific purpose. And he calls you to repent. If, If you know that you are walking in darkness, repent. Do something about it. I'm here. George, we have other men that can be here. Um, Dr. Zuber is here. You can talk to these men. Ask them. We have Bible study leaders that are here. Don't 
don't, don't go away. Don't miss it. I, I, to me, that, that would be the worst thing that you could do. Just heard of a 10-year-old down in Florida who died. You know, we don't know how much time we have. There was nothing wrong with them. Boom, like that. How does that happen? If you're a make-believer, you may know that you are a make-believer. Repent. Give your life to the one who gives life. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are Christ, if you are a believer, rejoice, folks. Praise God, because you absolutely did not deserve it. But he gave it to you anyway. Remain faithful. Remain faithful. Let the scriptures be your guide. Praise him every single day for that miracle of salvation because it was a miracle. I'm going to close in prayer, but I didn't think I would take up all that time. I didn't want to leave it for some questions. We have four minutes for questions. Father, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, may we all this afternoon take a moment just to take a look at our heart to make sure that we are in Christ Jesus. We don't want to fail that test. We want to stand before you, Lord, as those who have given fully to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our lives. But Lord, at the same time, knowing that the church is here to help wherever we possibly can. We pray this in your name. Amen.